When I was a kid, one of the TV shows we often watched as a family was Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, a series of wildlife documentaries by the American zoologist Merlin Perkins. The show would tell moving stories, for instance, of the bravery and commitment of animal mothers in protecting and providing for their young. At the end, the narrator would make a far-from-subtle segue to the sponsor, And just like the mother gazelle protects her young, so Mutual of Omaha protects you. I still remember that vividly because I think my skepticism of the advertising industry began right there. Imagine an episode, though, of Wild Kingdom that followed a lioness taking care of her cubs. There might have been a scene where she was hunting an antelope for dinner, tried to chase it down, but it escaped at the last minute. The tone of the documentary, for the viewers who've been sympathizing with that lioness for the last 20 minutes, would be that it was failure, a really sad moment. What will her babies eat? But suppose instead that in that particular episode, Merlin Perkins had been telling the story of the antelope, The moment of escape would be presented as one of joyous triumph. He escaped the ravenous beast who was stalking him, and now he'll get to live. The exact same incident can look very different depending on the perspective we're looking from. And we might be tempted to ask, but which one is right? Well, in a sense, they both are. The emotional build-up that the producer created may have caused us to side with the lioness. We would have been happy for her to have captured the antelope and fed her family, perhaps with a little thought for the impact on the antelope. Or conversely, had we been set up to adopt the antelope's perspective, our reaction would have been based on that, with little thought for the fate of the lion family. I think our minds are wired up to take sides, to gravitate to a particular perspective and park there, seeing the world from that viewpoint, to find a position that spares us from the mental work of having to hold two seemingly opposing views in tension. But in the case of our jungle animals, a zoologist would have a larger view, a view that encompasses both predator and prey not taking sides, ignoring neither the antelope's need for safety or the lion's need for food, seeing it all as part of a healthy, integrated ecosystem. At this time of year, we talk about the Christmas story, but actually there are multiple accounts of Jesus' incarnation in the Bible, stories told from quite different perspectives. Mark's biography of Jesus, the first written and by far the shortest, doesn't even include an account of the birth, but the others tackle the nativity from quite different perspectives, perspectives that may even seem contradictory. We may find one of the vantage points most comfortable, the place from which we like to see the story. 
But I think the richness of Christmas comes when we integrate all of the elements together. Two weeks ago, we looked at part of Luke's account, Mary's song, a song of wonder and joy that God has chosen her to bear Messiah, and a prophetic song announcing the upside-down nature of the kingdom that Jesus will bring. She sings, He routed the arrogant through their own cunning. Down from their thrones he hurled the rulers. Up from the earth he raised the humble. The hungry he filled with the fat of the land, but the rich he sent off with nothing to eat. And Luke's account continues with that inverted countercultural approach. The speaking parts are largely given to women. The glorious announcement of the birth by an angelic choir is delivered to some motley shepherds working the overnight shift. Not only are they poor and of low social status, the fact that they must handle dead animals in the course of their job made them ritually unclean. They are from the wrong side of the tracks, both from a religious and a societal perspective. And yet, they are the ones given the announcement of this history-bending birth, and they're likely the first visitors to the Holy Family. In Luke's story, we have a very human baby who is celebrated by the humble, the marginalized, and the outcasts. If Luke's account was revolutionary, Matthew's is much more traditional and conservative. If Luke's story is all CBC, Matthew's would have been the coverage by the National Post. Indeed, Matthew takes great pains to root his narrative in the ongoing story of the Hebrew people. Not sure how his editor let him get away with it, but he actually starts his account with a lengthy genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then 15 verses of X was the father of Y. He risks putting his hearers to sleep in order to make the point that this event, this special birth, isn't a radical departure from the past, but the promised continuation of God's covenant relationship with Israel. He suggests that if they'd been paying attention, there actually wouldn't be a surprise in the story. As he says, all this happened in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. The early visitors and those first affected by the birth in Matthew's account are also very different from Luke's. No country bumpkins and smelly farm hands here. The impact of Jesus' birth in Matthew's story is felt by the rich and the powerful. It's first discerned by the intellectual elite in a distant country, men whose studies indicated something remarkable in their examination of the stars, that a baby would be born king of the Jews. The news prompts them to make an arduous trek into unknown territory, bearing lavish gifts. They are full of both expectation and uncertainty. When they arrive in Jerusalem, they go to the palace, the obvious birthplace for an infant king. They don't find a baby, but they do encounter Herod, the client king of the Jews under Rome. Matthew's Jesus, even though he's an infant, born to peasants and living in humble circumstances, 
inspires reverent worship from the affluent and the intellectual. And, though still a helpless baby, he inspires jealous rage in Herod. Herod, the king who is reigning with the full backing of Rome, not someone you'd peg as easily intimidated. Yet intimidated he is, to the point where he launches a cruel genocide to eliminate this rival. If Luke's Jesus only drew the notice of a few shepherds, Matthew's commands the attention of the rich and powerful. Matthew's and Luke's accounts differ in tone, perspective, and characters, but they do have one striking feature in common. They both emphasize the setting. They go into considerable detail to locate their story in a specific time and place. Luke orients his readers by telling them, Now it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire. This first registration took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to be registered, each one to his own town. So Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. We get the timing from contemporaneous political events, and we get the region and town where Joseph and Mary's journey began, and the region and town where it ended. It would be like saying, it was during the Reagan administration, when Trudeau was Prime Minister of Canada, that there was a draft to raise an army for the Vietnam War. So Joseph and his wife Mary crossed the border at Niagara Falls into Canada to escape the draft. You could calculate the year pretty precisely and get a flavor for the political climate that drove a young couple into an arduous journey. As I mentioned earlier, Matthew helps us see where his story is located in time through his detailed genealogy. He makes the point that not only did the birth of Messiah occur at a specific point in time, it happened at that exact time it needed to. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David add up to 14. From David to the Babylonian exile, 14 generations. And from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah, 14 generations. There are lots of stories in the Bible where we may not be entirely clear of the time or place when they were to have occurred. But this is not one of them. These nativity accounts are clearly rooted in a very specific time and place. But now we turn to John's account, the last of the Gospels. John does just the opposite. Instead of being set in time, it is set outside of time, in eternity. And instead of being anchored in a specific place, it begins in the infinity of all that is created. If Matthew and Luke's accounts are all about itinerary details and scheduled visitors, John's is the opposite, to the point that some don't even see his account as including the nativity. Instead of practical details, John's story is full of wonder and transcendence as he wrestles to find metaphors that can can convey the enormity of the infinite and the eternal becoming embodied as a human. Here's what he writes. In the beginning was the Word, 
The Word was close beside God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, he was close beside God. All things came into existence through him. Not one thing that exists came into existence without him. Life was in him, and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And the word became flesh and lived among us. We gazed upon his glory, glory like that of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. I love how Eugene Peterson translates that last verse. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. It conveys the absurdity of the contrast, the infinite becoming the imminent. The word, the eternal logic of God, God's own expression of God's self, the light that lightens everyone and cannot be extinguished by any amount of darkness, the life, the pre-existent and the source of all life, all of that hugeness becoming wrapped up in a human body. Three writers, three different perspectives, and three different accounts of the Incarnation. Do we hear these three different accounts in, at Christmas time these days? Well, in one sense, yes. Our nativity scenes have both wise men and shepherds, a bright star and an angel choir, a human infant with a halo indicating his divinity. But they're all glommed together into a sort of melange. It's sort of like bad Christmas cake. Lots of good ingredients, but they lose their identity and distinctiveness in a chewy mess. When we do that, we can end up with a mediocre Christmas story. It's all been averaged out to fit us middle-class folk. It's good news for us, but maybe not for the homeless person shivering right now in Jackson Park. It's good news for us, those of us with mortgages and messed-up kids, but really doesn't apply to the rich and powerful. Yet Matthew and Luke's accounts challenge that middle-of-the-road perspective. They see a story that reaches from the manure-encrusted farmhand to the king in his palace with implications for them and everyone in between. We aren't only at risk of dampening down who this message is for, we can average out the one whose birth it is that is being announced. I love that Luke records that the baby Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes. A baby who is helpless to start with is being further disempowered by having his limbs restrained in a super tight bunting bag. And John, at the other extreme, describes the pre-existent eternal word who flung the stars into the heavens and spoke creation into existence. It's so easy, so tempting to sit with one of those extremes or to try somehow to average them out. We can have the powerful and eternal God who has no clue what it's like to navigate through the challenges of being human. Or we can have Jesus, the man, the great teacher, the revolutionary leader, who inspires us but doesn't offer a long-term resolution to the story. And of course, both of those have elements of truth, but if we anchor on one of those positions, it colors how we see and interpret the story, like with the lioness and, and antelope in the Wild Kingdom show. 
maybe for those of us in church land, we are more at risk for adopting a mediocre view, not the extremes of the remote God of deism or Jesus as just a good teacher, but instead a middle-of-the-road compromise. We see God as a nice old guy in the sky who once came downstairs to check on us, but is a bit out of touch with our reality and is limited in his resources to help. Christmas, the Christmas stories, challenge us to drop our comfortable niches or homogenized midpoints and come to terms with the extremes, to be prepared to encounter a God who is both infinite and imminent. I regularly pray a version of the prayer known as St. Patrick's Breastplate. It's a prayer that embraces the extremes. When I pray the Incarnation, God below me, incarnate of the earth, the visual image I have is of a massive bolt of lightning, a distillation of immense power into a single point, touching the material earth and springing forth into life infinite power and lowly dust. Both are part of the Christmas story. And while it's not very Christmassy, I want to end with the excerpt from St. Patrick's Breastplate that I pray. I invite you to join me. God above me, reigning from the heavens. God below me, incarnate from the earth. God before me when seen. God behind me when unseen. God at my right hand in my strength, God at my left hand in my weakness, God all around me filling all of everything, God within me by his Spirit. Amen. Amen.